Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. After um, we titled the sermon, I realized that um, I don't want to communicate the wrong thing. (laughs) I am not saying that this sermon will be the best sermon ever. Um, What I was alluding to is that Jonah's sermon, just on the merits, is, um, is the best sermon that was ever preached in the Bible, ever. The most successful sermon ever in the Bible. And um, it is astounding to me that the Lord would allow a lot of fruit to come from a prophet who, by all accounts, was incredibly despicable, um, which shows us, or should show us, that the power of God is not seen in the person, because we are all just instruments of God's grace. But it is seen to the fact that God decides and chooses whom he wants to work through to accomplish whatever purpose he wants. And so you and I, first of all, in the string of many high-profile men of God who have fallen and who have sinned, We don't lose hope because our hope is not in the man. Our hope is in the God who worked through the man. And it doesn't mean that the message of God somehow is deficient or wrong or broken. Actually, it's the opposite. That it is so powerful, it can work even through sinful men and women to accomplish his purposes. And so as you and I uh, go through our Christian walk, yes, we will see people rise and fall. We will see people who are godly people commit sin, and we are horrified by it. What do we say to that? We say that God is good because he can work through anyone that he chooses to accomplish his will. And I don't know but you, but that... Man, that, that encourages me. And it should you too. Don't ever become discouraged when you see a person in the Lord going wayward as we see Jonah has all through this text. Be encouraged that God is able to work in and through sinners like you and I to accomplish his will and no amount of sin is greater than God's grace. No amount of sin. All right, Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse number 1. Hear now the word of the living God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king of his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, this is your word, and these are your people. As we pray often, please, may your power fall on your people to change us and transform us from rebels, from those that are desiring our own way. And may you change our wills so that we might desire that which is good and right and holy. There is no hope apart from your word and your gospel. May that reality sink deep into us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen and amen. Last week, we studied the theme of mission in the book of Jonah. And one of the things we said about the mission of Jonah is that that mission is simply to make disciples. That's it. That's the mission of Jonah. That's what Jonah um, was supposed to do. That's what the people of God are, are supposed to do. When you and I come into the kingdom, when we become a part of God's covenant people, we are given the mission to make disciples. Now, this mission is seen in the Old Testament through Abraham. As the word of God says in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. God said to Abraham, in you, all the people of the world will be blessed. And therefore, every Israelite, it was on them to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, both in their community, but also in the community at large. But we see that's the same task given to us as God's people in the New Testament. The difference is now it's fulfilled in Christ. When Christ died and he rose again, he said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples. Now we are given that mission. Christ has given us that power to go out, not just within our communities and in our families. Of course, make disciples in your home, make disciples in the church, but we ought to be making disciples of all of those around us. And so we see the complete mission of the word of God is the same. It didn't change from Old Testament to New Testament. It's all the same. The people of God are called in every generation to make disciples. Jonah misunderstood that fundamentally. He thought the mission of 
the, the church, the reason why God put him in the covenant community is to only care for the needs of those in his covenant community. And that's why when God came to him and said, you know what, Jonah, you need to go to the Assyrians, you need to go to Nineveh, and you need to bring these people to the kingdom. Jonah said, uh-uh, no way, not doing that. Why? Because he misunderstood the mission. You know, sometimes you and I can misunderstand the mission as well. That our calling is to be on mission, to make disciples, both in our families, in our church, and even to those wherever we have influence. That's the message of Scripture. And that's what we're called to do. Now today, what I want to look at is I want to look at the power of the gospel when it is applied to the lives of individuals. And the power of the gospel is seen in this text. And I want to show you one key word that reveals the power of the gospel. And it's found in verse number 6 through 8. And it's used with some frequency, but it's this word turn. It's the word turn. That God's purposes towards the people of Nineveh was to turn their hearts away from sin, away from unrighteousness, and turn it to God. And that takes the power of the gospel. Recently, um, I took a trip down to Pensacola to work with a friend of mine um, on a nonprofit uh, ministry that he has. And so we, we're driving around, and you have to understand, Pensacola is like my city. You know, I could, I could put on a blindfold and drive through Pensacola. Don't worry, I'll probably never do that. But just for kicks and giggles, I often thought to myself, I can do that, because I've driven through the city a number of times. But recently, they had some construction. And I remember as I was uh, driving, my friend, he was trying to tell me, hey, Dennis, they have some construction. I was like, nah, dude, like, come on. I've been driving these streets for years, for decades. Like, I don't need you telling me where to go. And so in my arrogance, right, I kept driving, and he's like, hey, Dennis, you, you want to turn here because there's no more cutoff here. I know you remember that there's a cutoff here. And I said, dude, dude, come on, like seriously. And we were having a little argument. And, and to his credit, he didn't get upset. He just sat back and he says, okay, go. <laughs> you know? And you, you all know what happened, right? I went off course. And, and I went off course so bad that as he was sitting there smirking, right? And I was sitting there mortified. I had a choice to make. And the choice that I had to make was simple. I could remain in my incalcitrance and just kept going. Or, or I could have done the right thing and I could have turned around. And you probably guessed what I did, right? I remained in my incalcitrance. Well, obviously, we were late where we were going, and when we arrived, I turned to him because we were about to do a set on how important it is to yield to the truth. <laughs> and I said to him, I apologize. I sincerely do. That I can't do this set without apologizing to you and repenting to God for my incalcitrance because I wouldn't turn. And here's the deal. Here's the thing. The power of the gospel is seen in that very moment, will you turn? Will you turn? Or will you remain in your incalcitrance? Will you remain in your stubbornness? Will you remain in your rejection of Yahweh? 
That's what we see in this passage. It's as simple as that. God is calling his people to turn. Turn. But like me in that example, you know the one reason why I wouldn't turn? I I don't mind telling you. The reason why I wouldn't turn is because I was afraid that I would just look bad. That's it. And there's a number of reasons why you inside here won't turn. You feel like you won't have the life that you want to have. And you wouldn't turn your life completely to God because you feel like somehow you won't have access to all the things you want to have access to. Or God will rob you of your fun. Some of you believe that if you turn completely to the Lord, that somehow you'll become less of yourselves. But don't you understand, when you turn to the Lord, you become truly who God has designed you to be. And anything else is less than. Whatever reason that you are having your mind for not turning to the Lord, let me tell you, it is not good enough. And it will take the power of God in your life, the power of the gospel in your life, to completely turn you around the other way and go where God wants you to go. So my plea from the very beginning, if you miss nothing, if you miss everything, I don't want you to miss nothing. Well, maybe I do want you to miss nothing. Anyway, but what I want you to get primarily up front from this sermon is this. Right? Listen to me. Turn. Turn to God. Stop holding on to your sin. Stop holding on to your righteousness. Stop holding on to whatever it is you think you need to hold on to in order to be truly you. Stop. Turn. Experience the joy and the beauty and the blessing of what it means to be truly walking in obedience with Jesus. I could tell you that the next day we went through that same intersection that I was going through, and I turned the right way. I, I can't tell you how I felt. It felt so good. It's like, man, you know, I'm doing the right thing now, right? Turn. Now look, how do we see the power of the gospel represented in this text before us? Well, God's power is represented in Jonah chapter 3 and the gospel in three ways. First of all, it's seen through his word. Next, it's seen through his will. And last, it's seen through his wisdom. Through his wisdom. First of all, through his word. Second of all, through his will. Last of all, through his wisdom. First, the power of God is seen through his word. You know, this entire passage, Jonah 1 Right down to Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down to verse number 10, is a setup of a, a major clash. A clash of two titans, as it were. One is the immovable object, and the other is the irresistible force. And the irresistible force, of course, is God's word. If you look at verse number 1 through 4, you see that coming out. The word of the Lord in verse number 4 came to Jonah. And then in verse number two, God says, tell this message to Nineveh. Then in verse number three, he says, hey, go to Nineveh and call out against it. And verse number four, that's exactly what Jonah did. And so you have on one side the word of the Lord coming to Nineveh. And how is Nineveh described? 
Nineveh is described as the immovable object. Notice with me in verse number two, it's described as a great city. And then in verse number three, an exceedingly great city, which is, a, which is sort of like has two meanings, and we'll get to that in a moment. But Nineveh was the great city that no one could conquer. In fact, the Bible says that um, different portions of God's word and even historical documents show that Nineveh was a city so great that no army could besiege it. And by the way, that's how armies normally sack cities, by besieging it, by going around it. But there was no army that could have sacked Nineveh. There was no philosophy or religion persuasive enough to sack Nineveh. In fact, the historical documents during that time showed that Nineveh had survived a famine, Nineveh had survived a plague, Nineveh had survived revolts. There was no one or nothing in the entire known world that could have taken down the Assyrians and their army and their cities. Nothing. But one day, one day, a prophet, one prophet came. And for three days, he spoke five words that brought a hundred, over 150,000 people to their knees in repentance. That's the power of the gospel. The gospel did something that no army can do, no philosophy can do, no famine can do, no pestilence can do, that no one else in the history of the Assyrian, uh, if you look at Assyrian annals up to that point, no one had ever been able to even come close to Nineveh, to come close to the Assyrians. But one day a prophet showed up and he preached the message of the gospel, and it completely overthrew the entire city. It completely upended every aspect of their lives. One commentator described it like this. Against all expectations, the powerful, violent city of Nineveh put on sackcloth, a sign of mass repentance, from the greatest of them to the least, from the top to the bottom of the social spectrum. Notice what that commentator is saying, and please don't miss this. He didn't attribute Nineveh's change to political rightness. And he did not attribute that change to Nineveh having this amount of money, or wealth, or social, uh, social equality. He did not attribute this change to right education. And he did not attribute, attribute this change to having universal health care. What did he attribute this change to? The power of the gospel. Now hear me today, I'm not making a political statement and I'm not advancing a political view. Most of you who know me know that I don't roll like that. No, this pulpit is about preaching the gospel. And I'm telling you right now that what enacted change in Nineveh was nothing, nothing more than the power of God's word. And let me ask you for a moment, Christian, do you still believe in the power of God's word? Do you still believe in the power of the gospel? Because that's important. You know what amazes me about this passage? 
Jonah never doubted the power of God. Ask yourself the question, why was he running? The exact opposite. He said, God, I know not only are you willing, but you're able, you're powerful enough to change the entire city of Nineveh. Never once, a, a scoundrel like Jonah, never once doubted the power of God to change. And so often you and I do. So often we do. Do you believe in the power of God to change you? Do you believe in the power of God to change your marriage and your children and your society? Do you believe in the power of God to change our culture? You know, sometimes if I listen to Christians, we sound like defeatists. We sound as if all hope is lost and nothing else can be done. Woe is us. What did Paul say in Romans 1, 16 through 18? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Now keep in mind, where is Paul writing? Who is Paul writing this to? He is writing this to the Christians in Rome, the most powerful entity of that time. No one matched Rome when it came to political power, army, education. Pax Romana was at its highest. Rome controlled all of the known world. And what does he say as he wrote Christians living in that era? He said, nothing, nothing will outstrip the power of God. Now hear me today. Some of you are probably sitting down there and thinking, man, pastor, that's really simplistic. I know. Yeah, I know. Hey, pastor, that's pretty basic. I know. Isn't that wonderful? That God in his infinite wisdom said the very thing that all of us need inside here today to completely turn our lives around and change is the power of the gospel. You look at every single awakening and revival throughout history. What allowed that to happen? The gospel. And it had complete change. It's because, and, and by the way, it has measurable impact. In the city of Nineveh, child sacrifice stopped. Wanting violence stopped. Murders stopped. Raping stopped. Petty thieves stopped. Marriages were restored. Temple prostitution stopped. You can go on and on and on. There is no social change we can enact through government that can have more thorough impact in our society than when the power of the gospel is preached and proclaimed and lived by God's people first, and then they take it out into the city. And please don't get this twisted. I am not saying that healthcare is not important, education's not important, money isn't important. But what I am saying is this, that the gospel and its power is more important. And we are kidding ourselves and fooling ourselves if we believe there is some other power out there that can change our lives, our families, and this society beyond the power of the gospel. Are you praying for it? Are you endeavoring to live it? Christian, do you just believe in it? Not only do we see the power of the gospel clear and evident, 
power of his word, but also the power of God's will. And how is the power of God's will evident in this passage? Again, notice with me. Notice with me how the people of Nineveh, when they heard the message, in verse number 5, the word of God says that all of them called for a fast and put on sackcloth. And what's interesting in this passage is that the people of Nineveh did it before the kings and the high officials did it. You see, in their society, you did nothing independent of your king and your princes. Nothing. To do this was to defy the social order. But why did they do it? Why did they do it? Because their wills had been changed. They repented. Now notice, uh, one of the best statements on repentance is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, Catechism 87. You should read it. I mean, it is, it is amazing. It's one of the best statements on repentance, and here it is. It says, repentance is a saving grace where the sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and understanding of God's mercy in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. What a wonderful statement on repentance. But beloved, what, what causes repentance on that uh, at that level? It can only come from the power of the Holy Spirit. It can only come from the Holy Spirit changing our will. Now look, some of you, like me, have a strong-willed child. You don't have to put your hands up. You know who you are, and you know who that child is. And I have read the book. I have listened to the podcast. I have pursued the wisdom of the saints. And you know what I realized in all of this? No matter how much I try, I cannot actually change my child's will. Do you realize that? Some of you say, well, Pastor Dennis, like, couldn't you discipline and talk to? And I was like, yeah, yeah. There's a certain amount of pressure you can put on a child to sit down. But I trust me, they're standing on the inside. Right? Yes, of course. You can, there's a certain amount of pressure you can exert on a child to get them to sit down. But they're standing on the inside. Why? Because you can't change their wills. None of us in here can change the will of another person. Please understand that. That's so important. That's why we pray and ask the Lord to change the will of our children, of our lost relatives, of people in our community. You can preach, teach, talk until you're blue in the face as long as you realize that the power to enact true change comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't ordain means. I am a means in my children's life. And I ought to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel to them. But I also know this, that I have no power to change them. And for that reason and humility, I go before the Lord regularly and say, God, please change the will of my child because I cannot do it. The same thing is true for you and I. The only way your will, the only way the will of your family, your friends, and the people around you will be changed is through the message of the cross. Now, notice, 
Notice how this change is seen. First of all, through fasting and putting on sackcloth. What does that mean? These are, these are things that show us that the strong become weak. These are symbols of repentance. They repented fully. They took off all their beautiful garments and they put on the rough garments of sackcloth and they threw ashes on themselves to show repentance. But notice something else. There's many more. If you have time, please read through it. There's so many little subtle examples of repentance, but I'll give you one more. Notice with me in verse number six. It said, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne, removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Notice it said that he stepped down from his throne. Hear me today. The only way you could have gotten a king off his throne in those days is if you came in with a sword and you ripped him off his throne and killed him. But notice the power of the gospel that changes will, that he willingly gave up his throne for the king of kings and lord of lords. Hey, listen, I don't know what your throne is. And all of us have them. I don't know if your throne is pride. I don't know if your throne is believing, you know, that you're better than others. You're more educated than others. Whatever your throne may be. Maybe your throne is bitterness and anger or frustration. I don't know what your throne is. But here's the deal. One way or another, God will bring you down from your throne. Whatever you're establishing as the throne in your life that you are sitting on, God will take you down off that throne. It's either going to happen through repentance or it's going to happen through the power of God in putting his hand on you in a way that forces you off that throne. Hear me today. Whatever throne you are on, it's time to come down because only, there's only room on a throne for the king of kings and the lord of lords and absolutely nothing else. The last thing I want you to see, how do we see the power of, God, of the gospel in this passage? It's through the wisdom of God. Notice in verse number 10, after they repented, I mean, it was full repentance. They even, they even put sackcloth and ashes on the animals. We're going to get to that in the next few weeks, right? But notice in verse number 10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, what is this word relented? It's a beautiful word. In fact, it demonstrates the wisdom of God. Now, let me say first up, relenting, God relenting doesn't mean that God changed his mind. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. If he is sovereign and his purposes are set from eternity past, there is no way that God changes his mind. Scripture is clear for that. So, so when you see the word relented in the Bible, it doesn't mean that God changes his mind. Secondly, it doesn't mean that God is simply excusing sin because that's cheap grace. That's cheap grace. God is not excusing the sins of the Ninevites. And, and thirdly, God is not denying justice to those who have suffered. You know, some people say, well, you know, the Ninevites, they killed a bunch of people. God, aren't you going to judge them? And some people get frustrated with God. And we're going to see this next week. 
But that's not what God is doing here. Understand me, when you read the word relenting in Scripture, here's what God is doing. God is providing the blessing of grace in the cross of Jesus Christ now. Right now to the Ninevites. But he is putting off judgment until the cross happens and he can pour it all out on Christ. That's what relenting means. It means that the Ninevites received all the blessings and Christ received all of the punishment. Full wrath. That's what relenting means. And incidentally, this is what Jonah missed and why in chapter 4 he's going to get so angry. Because Jonah is saying to himself, God, how is it possible? How is it possible that your grace and your mercy can be poured out on a bunch of sinners and you don't punish them? And Jonah knew that the Messiah, when he comes, all of this will be poured out on him. He's angry at God because he doesn't understand the wisdom of God in the cross. And you know what, beloved? You and I do the same thing, but in a different way. When I heard that Lisa had died, for those of you that don't know Lisa Vines, um, she's a godly woman that has been in our church for many years served us wonderfully in all sorts of ways. When I heard that she died, my wife and I began to cry out to the Lord. One of the questions we had, we said, God, why did you allow Lisa to die after just a few months? It seemed like weeks of being married. Why, why would you take her when she's so needed here? I found myself getting angry at God. Like Jonah, because I was questioning the wisdom of God. But we all have to understand that the same God that ordained the salvation of pagans is the same God who ordained the taking of the saints. And that there's no difference in him, there's no malice in him. That both of those are subject to the wisdom of God. And what do we do? What do we do when we're faced with this reality? We should be like Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is Job doing there? Job is realizing that yes, God's grace and mercy is seen. That, that he gives, but it's also seen by the fact that he takes away. And the same God does both. And that what is our response in the midst of that? Well, our response in the midst of that is to worship. We cry out, oh, the depths of the riches of God and his wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That's what we cry out. Because we know that God is good. And God is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we worship him as such. Now, what's the big takeaway? Well, the big takeaway is simply this. There is no power that surpasses the power of the gospel. Beloved, you need to rest in that. And you need to seek to live it and pray for it. And one of the ways the power of the gospel is seen is by us coming as a body, and partaking in these sacraments. You say, Pastor, how 
How is it seen? How is the power of God seen? Well, the power of God is seen in the fact that in these, this bread and this wine, we are spiritually fed. In the same way, when you leave here, you are going to eat a meal, and that meal is going to provide you physical strength as you partake of it. In the same way, this meal that is prepared for you by the divine hand of God provides you spiritual strength because you will partake of it in faith and by his divine goodness and pleasure, he will give you grace to sustain you in all time. That's the power of the gospel, beloved. Isn't that glorious? Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that as we see in Jonah, we see the power of your gospel coming to us through your word, through your will, and through your wisdom. And even now, your power comes to us in the same way. Thank you, Father. Thank you. We praise you and we lift you up and we magnify your name. Thank you that the same God that ordains the salvation of sinners is the same God who ordained our dear sister to be taken from us. And even in the midst of those realities, we give you all the honor, glory, and praise. World without end. Amen. Amen.